house. No, the right no, house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada water. With a hunger for life. Thy head is full of quarrel, like an egg is full of meat. William Shakespeare, Romeo and Juliet. Fell for a waitress. I'm asking you out with me tonight on a date. I just asked her out. Who's lost her taste for romance. I want to go out with you, that's all. No. And oh. Frankie? Johnny? Ooh, I just got goosebumps. Do you know that song? Frankie and Johnny! Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that keeps on trying to divorce Hank Williams scene after scene. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I am your host, Joe Reed. I am here as always with my co-host, Chris File. Hello, Chris. Hello, Joe. How are you? I'm good. Uh, I am uh, putting on my little like diner outfit to serve our listeners this episode. Oh. Kate Nelligan is talking to me about sex. Right. We should have learned like diner lingo. Those, you know, like give me yeah. two like whatever greasy spoons on. Who a do I gotta brick- screw to get a waffle around here? Yeah, 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 yeah. Somebody else say that. I mean, it seems like something that everybody in this movie has said at one point or another. I love a good diner like milieu i like this movie made me think of like alice doesn't live here anymore and muppets take manhattan and all of the classics of diner cinema truly i guess diner waitress yeah although waitress is like cute pie shop small town whereas my vibe is like greasy spoon big city like you know dishwasher coming from out back with a tub full of like clanking plates and that kind of thing cigarettes and bad coffee right like that scene in blues brothers did you ever see the blues brothers movie i mean when i was a kid so like at this point i don't really remember it. where they're like getting the band back together and they go to get the one um i want to say drummer but maybe he's their bass player and he's aretha franklin's husband and they're in the diner, and they try to order, and they just order, like, four fried chickens whole, and she gets so fucking pissed at them. And then the other one orders dry white toast, and she gets so <laughs> mad. I love that scene. I re- that's, that's when they do think, right? Yes. That's what I, when Aretha okay. died and everybody was doing their, like, very thoughtful tributes and whatever. And I'm like, I have nothing on this regard, but I'm going to talk about the Blues Brothers. Because that was my first, <laughs> like, exposure to her. And it was wonderful. I think it was that and, like, WrestleMania three when she sang America the Beautiful at WrestleMania three. So, like, You've those are my first exposures me. to Aretha, and I stand by them. Matt, what the hell is he talking about? Don't get roused, sugar. Don't you don't get roused, sugar me. Now, you're not going back on the road no more, and you ain't playing in them old two-bits, lazy dives. You're living with me now, and you're not going to go sliding around with your old white hoodlum friends. But, babes, this is Jake and Elwood, the Blues Brothers. The Blues Brothers? Shit. They still owe you money, fool. Ma'am, would it make you feel any better if you knew that what we're asking Matt here to do is a holy thing? You see, we're on a mission from God. Don't you blaspheme in here. Don't you blaspheme in here. Now, this is my man. This is my restaurant. And you two are going to just walk right out that door without your dry white toast. 
Without your full fried chickens and without Mad Guitar Murphy. WrestleMania 3. Yeah, that was the big, like, because they, like, the thing with WrestleMania all through, especially, like, the early years was that was when the WWF, like, invited the rest of the entertainment world to sort of, like, be their ambassadors, right? So, like, that's when, like... Participate. Right, like, Cindy Lauper. That was sort of, like... Right, yeah. And, like, a lot of times, after the fact of, like... Like, Cindy Lauper, like, really, like, got caught up in it for a while and was, like, managing women wrestlers, and it was kind of amazing. But then, after a while, it was just, like... Yeah, during the, like, mid-80s. So, you know how when girls just want to have fun, like, her dad is Captain Lou Albano, who is, like... Right, 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 right. And so, like, he was, like... He managed, like, a tag team. He was, like, all, you know current on wrestling programming and so she was i can't remember the wrestler that she managed but like there was a whole thing where like for a while where like she would show up at events and like be part of the storyline a little bit and so that was when like wwf was like fully like cresting into pop culture and then they would sort of coast on every year at wrestlemania we'll get some big star to either like be a ring announcer or do commentary or in this case at WrestleMania 3 which was like the biggest WrestleMania of them all it was in this big open air football stadium and Aretha sang America the Beautiful and it was like gorgeous it was like Whitney Houston at the Super Bowl of that time oh wow yeah and she was like sitting down at a piano in the middle of the field like uh it was or in the middle of the ring i guess and it was pretty amazing so Naturally, we're here to talk about WrestleMania 3. Okay, so Frankie and Johnny and the Claire de Lune is currently on Broadway with Audra McDonald and Michael Shannon. And now all I can think about is like Audra McDonald performing at like WrestleMania 12 or whatever it is. It was WrestleMania 3, but that's okay. Um, Well, I mean like... Oh, like later down the line. Imagine... Oh, yeah. Audra McDonald... In, like, wrestling culture. She could do it. She'd win another fucking I was going to say, just give her another Tony for it. It's interesting that you mentioned, because it is, it's Audra and it's Michael Shannon on stage with this now. And I just recently, as in, like, yesterday, watched the American Masters episode on PBS for Terrence McNally, who wrote the play. Uh, Frankie mm-hmm. and Johnny in the Claire de Lune. Uh, which, by the way, the title Frankie and Johnny in the Claire de Lune always made me think that the diner was called diner the, Claire was de Lune. the Claire de Lune. But right. no, it's just Frankie and Johnny in the Moonlight. Like, it's... But they, you know, but Claire de Lune, of course, is translated to Moonlight. Um, right. But it's the, the, the musical piece by Debussy. Anyway, um, the... The thing about the Terrence McNally retrospective is they mention, because the original was F. Murray Abraham and Kathy Bates, and we'll talk about that in a second when we talk about casting the movie, but then there was a revival in the early 2000s, which was Edie Falco and Stanley Tucci, which I would which have... Which led to their affair. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yes, they had an affair because... Stan, I mean, like, we are now a gossip podcast. Yeah, no, but I love Stanley it. Tucci left his wife for a time and then went back to his wife, who eventually passed away. I don't think I knew that. Yes, but I would have like sawed off limbs to have been able to see Edie Falco and Stanley Tucci do this play, like amazing. Anyway, we're talking about the 1991 film. Frankie and Johnny, which... Not in the Claire de Lune. Not in the Claire de Lune. And it is, like, a pretty significant adaptation that McNally did himself, which I find really interesting. Because this movie really does... When you talk about, like, movies that open up a play, 
and you know that generally that means like setting a couple scenes out of doors you know what i mean yeah that kind of (laughs) outside of the one room that it takes place in right Um, this play is two characters two actors in one bedroom for the entirety of the play and this movie creates like a full like range of side characters and subplots kind of not really like subplots but like there are other things happening fully not having much to do with the main characters and to my understanding of the play it's like these are people that they talk about sure they must and be. then yeah. we actually like see these people i would imagine like at the midway point when they actually like hook up and it seems to take place over several different days but like that part of the movie that is almost exclusively these two um, characters, that is probably the more direct lift from the play, but it makes for a really strange, not bad movie. But, like, you can definitely tell when, like, the text of the play kicks in. I'm really excited to talk to you about how much you like or don't like this movie because I think it's really... I'm, I'm not fully sure where I jump off in terms of a of an easy thumbs up or thumbs down. But I uh, McNally talked about how when he went to do the adaptation, he's like, I put the original <laughs> script for the play in a locked drawer. He's like, I did not want to be tempted to refer to it too much. So it was as much of a, like, from the ground up adaptation as he could manage and muster, which I think is very cool. I'm in a very Terrence McNally mood this weekend, so, like, you're going to have to get used to that. No, I'm into it. So, again, we're talking about Frankie and Johnny from 1991, directed by Gary Marshall, which we'll certainly talk about, because you know how I love to talk about trash piece icon Gary Marshall. Gary Marshall. This was, was his follow-up to Pretty Woman, we should say. It came out the year mm, after Pretty Woman. Which is is pretty significant, and I think it makes a lot of sense why he was picked to do this adaptation, because it feels very much like we want another pretty woman. We want another romantic comedy mm-hmm. with sort of like, you know, spiky, thorny characters a little bit. Uh, written by, as I said, Terrence McNally, adapted from his 1987 play, Frankie and Johnny and the Claire de Lune, starring Michelle Pfeiffer, Al Pacino, Kate Nelligan, Nathan Lane, Hector Elizondo, of course. It's a Gary Marshall movie, so of course Hector Elizondo is in it. Premiered October 11th, 1991. Chris, before we move on to talking about what we liked and didn't like about the movie, would you like to grace us with 60 seconds worth of plot from Frankie and Johnny? Sure. All right. Let's put one minute on the clock. And Chris, 60 seconds, Frankie and Johnny, go. Okay, the Frankie and Johnny. Frankie is played by Michelle Pfeiffer. She's kind of this lonely waitress in New York City who doesn't really, like, want to date or really, like, have much of a life outside of, like, renting videos and, like, having pizza at home. She has a gay uh, roommate played by Nathan Lane who's, like, trying to convince her to date. Whatever. Um, Johnny is played by Al Pacino. He's recently out of jail. He was in jail for, uh, like, writing fraudulent checks, I think, or something. But anyway, he gets a job at the diner she works at as a uh, chef and like immediately there's like a flirtation um, everybody thinks that Johnny is sexy all of the waitresses there including Cora who's played by Kate Nelligan they he has sex with Cora but like it's not really a thing he is like really hungry and horny for like emotional commitment and connection and he thinks he's gonna marry Frankie right away it's actually kind of creepy but anyway they do have sex and then they slowly fall in love you find out that she was previously abused and can't have children and it's really tragic Um, but yeah it ends lovely it does end kind of lovely doesn't it yeah they get 
they get he gets a radio DJ to play Claire de Lune on the radio, and it's actually and she nice. gives him a toothbrush, and she gives him a toothbrush, and then they sleep on her pullout couch, which is sweet, but also like I have so many thoughts of like wow, her pullout couch is her regular bed, like that's a bummer to me. I mean, like the the movie lays it on thick that like her life is a bummer, yeah, and like yeah, she yeah. wants her life to be a bummer. Well, I like I like the fact that it's it's an interesting like these times that we live in in New York kind of a touch that doesn't really they don't you don't really get it too heavily. It's not like she gets mugged in the movie, which I think would have been like a very sort of ham handed shorthand. Got ham handed, but it's not a, a pretty. Um, it's not like pretty New York, which you would usually expect from a romantic comedy like this. No, it's it's very because like so 1991, the 80s in New York were sort of. I just watched the first, the original Ghostbusters the other day. No, wait, it was the second Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters two were like the both great New York movies, right? And so the plot in Ghostbusters two is that this like supernatural slime that they find underneath the city is like reactive to emotions and that they need to get the whole city of New York to like get the slime to react positively or else they're going to like whatever all get killed. And like, that's a big deal of how they get the new statue of Liberty to walk, you know, into midtown Manhattan or whatever. Um, But at one point, the it must be like I think it's the mayor of New York is just like a um, being miserable and treating everybody like dirt is every New Yorker's God given right. I think it's the second one. If he says it in the first one, it's very applicable yeah. to what happens in the second one. Anyway, but that reminded me of just like there was this romanticism, especially at that time of New Yorkers. This was all very pre 9-11. And then after 9-11, New York became about resiliency and, you know all those other things that we mythologize. Um, Americana. Right. Which is not to say that any of this is not true, but just like in terms of the way we mythologize New York back in the eighties and early nineties, it was New Yorkers are tough and crabby and they will, you know, scowl at you just as soon as look at you. But there was a romanticism to that. And I think Frankie and Johnny, you get a sense of New York as a tough city, a, you know, a little bit of a pitiless city, but they don't show it by, again, having her get mugged or having her, like, see yeah. a cockroach in her apartment. But it's little things like she walks by the f- storefront of a like electronics shop and sees a VCR and then mentions several times during the rest of the movie, which I'm sure is a thing in the show because it feels like very much like a thing you would repeat a in the monologue. show to, to, yeah. to keep, like, to indicate character. But, like, all she, she just, she's so... She's been so burned out on love and dating that she doesn't want to do it anymore. She just wants to stay home and watch her VCR and have snacks and sort of retire into this sort of post-romance stage of her life in her mid-30s. And There's also this element where she's, like, being voyeuristic to her neighbors and, like, watching yes. them live her, their lives. Yes. And, like, there's an older couple that's very lovely. You see uh, a domestic abuse situation. Yes. Um, so it's like she's kind of witnessing other people's lives. Like one of the like final notes where it's like she can move on. She sees the husband that was abusing his wife and she sees that she has moved out and the closets are empty and like she gets to have a nice smile because like good things are happening around her. So maybe she can invite them in for herself. Um, yeah, yes. 
it's that definitely felt like a monologue as well yeah absolutely but i like the fact that like those are the things where i wouldn't necessarily expect that kind of subtlety from a gary marshall movie and I appreciated it because not a lot of other things are that subtle in this movie. The, I think the music choices, I mean, are like very the things you're describing are like while there's like this upbeat Terrence Trent Darby song where he's literally screaming Frankie and Johnny. <laughs> That's over the opening like first. The movie opens with Terrence Trent Darby screaming Frankie and Johnny, and I laugh. <laughs> so hard not necessarily at but with because it is such an like an earnest early 90s rom-com trope of like look at this upbeat song to remind you that even though these people are like emotionally damaged this is an upbeat enterprise yeah it's i think that was i think that was one end of it and i think that's one of the more like I can sort of smile and laugh at that, but there are some of the choices with the score and with like, there's a, there's a, there's a song that they play when they first have sex, when Frankie and Johnny first have sex, that is this sort of like quasi Edie Brickell, but like poppier kind of melody going on. And it's just like, I don't understand. Cause like the sex scene, it doesn't have to be harrowing, but there are like, there are serious emotions going on. This is, she's trying to like get him to, you know, have this sort of like right. release after he's been out of jail. Cause the whole thing, when he has sex, he has the one night stand with Kate and Elegant's character. And she's just like, he didn't move. He didn't do anything. He didn't move. He didn't say anything. He was perfectly silent. Yeah, comatose. Right. And, but that like song cue when Frankie and Johnny finally have sex and they're both like basically scream fucking or like having an orgasm at the same time. It's like the type of music that you would see on like one of those time life um, like infomercials for it's like like what was it like soul jams or something sort where of. it's like it's like basically would have been called like music to fuck to. I kept. I kept thinking it should have been the theme song to a season of Felicity. It was just very, <laughs> I I couldn't get behind it. And I thought it really undercut for me, a lot of the emotions of that scene. And I think it was trying to be like, don't get freaked out by this scene where they're both like screaming, you know, and sort of like maybe the sex is too good. Right. But it's just like, don't be traumatized by this. And it's just like, this is fun. This is light. This should be fun. And it's just like, you don't have to try so hard to tell me that I want to sort of be in this moment with these actors while they're having this moment. And I think some of the, the flaws of this movie are when I think Gary Marshall doesn't quite trust his audience to go for the ride with what Pfeiffer and Pacino are doing. I think Pfeiffer and Pacino are fan fucking tastic in this movie. I think especially her. I think she is yeah, yeah. so phenomenally good in this movie. And we're gonna talk about the ninety one best actress race and why she was and wasn't a part of it. But it's It's a very Gary Marshall thing to like underline what he wants you to feel and not necessarily trust like what's actually happening on screen or like trying to enhance a certain emotion. Right. Rather than, you know, developing it naturally. Yeah. And it's it's kind of too bad because I think the stuff that McNally does in the adaptation is really interesting. I think he he, you know, creates this Nathan Lane character, which I had no idea that Nathan Lane was in this movie or played 
you know, the kind of character that he does. He's the gay neighbor, and, like, we... Is he a neighbor or a roommate? I thought he was right, a roommate. You're roommate. right, you're right, you're right. Um, He's just in and out of doors so much in this in the movie that I sometimes thought neighbor, but no, you're totally right. And he's got this sort of younger, handy kind of a boyfriend, and I kind of loved that little aspect to it. And he mentions here and there about how he, his sort of dating malaise sort of mirrored Frankie's for a while and he didn't mm-hmm. want to do anything because and he sort of makes of the AIDS epidemic right he makes offhanded references to the plague and whatnot and but I thought we've become so conditioned to now to hating the idea of like the gay best friend because it became such a trope but I think there's something about watching that kind of a character in 91 when Mm -hmm. gay visibility in general in mainstream movies was just not the thing. And Lane doesn't, he's not ridiculous in this movie. He's not like loathsome in any way. He's, he doesn't hate himself. He's not sad. You know what I mean? He's just sort of like a good best friend character. There's something to this character that like, I really appreciated and that like, when the movie's kind of at its best or, like, the most unexpected, it's kind of making... It's trying to be this, like, tapestry of, like, lonely journeyman New York City, basically. Yeah. And I think he was one of the more effective things of that, of just, like, passively bringing up the AIDS epidemic and being, like, this is what is... His line is something to the extent of, like, am I supposed to be lonely just because there's a plague going on? Yes. Um, Yes. And, like, I thought that was so interesting and effective in, like, creating... While you have this love story at the center of it, you have the idea of all these people trying to have emotional connections, and that's what the city is going on around them. What was know? the name of the other waitress who wasn't Kate Nelligan's character? Oh my god, I loved her. I fucking um, loved her. Um, Jane Morris, I think, is the actress. Netta? Yes. Um, she has a line, because at a couple points in the movie, they just sort of like hop from character to character at home, and... Um, which I think is also very like it felt like Gary Marshall sort of like super early nineties tra- training wheels for like his uh, New Year's Eve Valentine's Day kind of movies where it's just yes. like we're gonna like check in on like different characters at different moments. But she is is it, she's feeding she's feeding a pet of some sort and she mentions the her brand cereal. She sort of like makes note of the her like bran heavy cereal and she just goes might as well eat some rope and yank it straight through (laughs) yeah (laughs) and i just died laughing it's a great line but it's also delivered so hysterically and she i absolutely loved her she has some real zingers in this that i really enjoyed and i appreciated it um yeah i don't know i there's a lot that i found charming about this movie and i thought and again I am not a knee-jerk anti-Gary Marshall person. I know he's made some real stinkers, or he did before uh, before he passed away a few years ago. But I do feel like if the tone were a little bit more confident in what this movie were doing, or if it, like, I don't know. There was something, I think, that was a little bit missing for me that sort of left the performances stranded. I don't know what you thought. No, I, I mean, I agree with you. I think that... 
if you're going to essentially make a two-hander play into kind of an ensemble piece with these two people still at the center of it and, like, open this play up, I think the ideas that it has in, like, again, like, a tapestry of a lonely New York City, like, I think that's interesting. I think that's especially interesting to do in a romantic comedy. I don't know if Gary Marshall is the person to do that even though i think it's one of his better movies yeah um just from a qualitative standpoint um oh yeah i we should talk about like this is one of three movies that he directed that has a pause that has a fresh rating on rotten tomatoes right now it is his one it's his second best reviewed movie ever after the flamingo kid the movie from 1984 with uh matt dylan i want to say which i've never seen but it's that, it's Frankie and Johnny, it's Pretty Woman, which again was the year before this, and then that is the line of demarcation, and then it's Nothing in Common, which I've also never seen, which they mentioned on Blank Check like literally as I'm listening to it yesterday, which is so funny because I've never heard of this movie, and now it's come up for me like twice in the span of 24 hours, which is very... Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Princess Diaries then is next... Runaway Bride. We're already into like the 40s. Princess Diary at 47. I know people get mad when people like cite percentages on Rotten Tomatoes as like a an actual thing, but like it is it is an imperfect guide, but it's a guide. Let's say. I feel like we do a lot of our like bread and butter is the movies that are in the 40s on Rotten Tomatoes, but it'll be in like the 60s on Metacritic. So it's yeah. like largely they're negative reviews, but they're like mixed negative. Right. And this feels like the quintessential, I bet that it is lower on Metacritic and higher on Rotten Tomatoes. Like it's mixed positive. Look it up on Metacritic while, while I run down. Uh, I'll try to find Darius. it. So Runaway Bride is at 46%. Um, Overboard below that at 45 they have all of his credits, including, like, when he's an actor and when he's in other things. So I'm trying to, like, weed those out. Beaches. Beaches is at 38%. That is wrong. I know Beaches Vicious. is not everybody's cup of tea, but it's better than 38%. That's some That's some. I don't want to watch a movie about women kind of bullshit happening uh-huh. with Beaches. It's, okay, what is Frankie and Johnny's Rotten Tomatoes score? It is 66%. Oh, it's sixty six on Metas. Oh wow! Too. The rare, the rare, and what is his? Uh, what is the Flamingo Kid there? Because that's his highest at eighty three percent. I'm gonna look it up. All right. Either way, that's like middle of the road positive for Metacritic. So yes, I'm going to take that as a win for my guess. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of there's a lot of twenty five percent or lower with Gary. Raising Helen is down there at twenty five. Princess Diaries two. Georgia Rule, 18%. Valentine's Day, 18%. New Year's Eve, 7%. Exit to Eden, 6%. Mother's Day bottoms it out at 6% as well. That is... This is where I start to be like, all right, we can maybe, like, let... Put put the foot off of the gas pedal on, you know, running over Gary Marshall. Some, a lot of those movies are not great or good movies. But, like... There is an enjoyment to watching something, I think. Like, I saw Mother's Day in the theater with three of my friends, and we had a good laugh, and there's a moment where Julia Roberts' character in her ridiculous, bowl-cut, redhead wig in that movie stares into the middle distance outside a, I swear to Christ, whistle-stop cafe window, (laughs) and a train, like... 
you get her train whistle and it's just like i don't know what kind of camp is happening here but it's something and i don't know i think there's something to that i will sit down and i will watch valentine's day on hbo for a little bit i will watch okay well like the other sister is problematic but like I will certainly watch Beaches. I'll watch Raising Helen. Hell yeah, I'll watch Raising Helen. Why wouldn't I watch that? I'll watch any of the Princess Diary movies. Like, come on. Absolutely. Okay, so Gary Marshall on Metacritic, uh, Frankie and Johnny, is one of two um, uh, green movies, I guess you call them, like, yeah. uh, uh, praised or whatever. Um, the other one is Nothing in Common. Uh, Flamingo Kid isn't even on Metacritic, probably because it's too old. Interesting. Yeah, 1984. Wait, now I want to look up what Nothing in Common is actually about, because I feel like we've mentioned Walter it Walter Matthau, right? No, it's Tom Hanks and Jackie Gleason. A highly successful uh, advertising oh. executive decides to put his job on hold after getting an update from his father that he and his wife are divorced and decides to extend his break after revealing that his father is a diabetic. Wow, lots happening there. Eva Marie Saint is in this movie. Wow. Hanks. I would not be shocked if I saw this movie as a kid, but I do not remember. It does feel like the kind of movie that would have been on cable or like HBO or whatever a lot. The poster is Hanks on, it's like two two faces facing each other in like profile. And it's Hanks on one side, and it's Jackie Gleason in like a newsboy cap and a cigar and a pencil mustache. Like, they're both glaring at each other. The tagline is, it's a comedy and a drama, just like life. That sounds like a lot. It sounds like a lot of emotion for safe, is what I'm saying. And it is now <laughs> available to stream for free on Prime Video. So honestly, that might be what I'm doing this afternoon, is finding out what is the deal with Gary Marshall's Nothing in Common from 1986. Interesting. All right. But so, five years later, he would direct Frankie and Johnny. So... When we talk about why this movie had Oscar buzz, I think the Gary Marshall thing is actually probably part of it because Pretty Woman was the year before. Pretty Woman was a sensation, like box office-wise, culture-wise. Very close to an Oscar win. Very close to an Oscar win for Julia Roberts. She was certainly in the mix. It was probably her and Angelica Houston and Kathy Bates sort of all swirling together at the top of that category, I would imagine. Angelica Houston was nominated for... The Grifters. Grifters that year. And and Bates ends up pulling it out. So that's the interesting thing, too, is Kathy Bates is the original stage star of Frankie and Johnny and the Claire de Lune. It's her and F. Murray Abraham. And just sort of wrap your head around that pairing for a second. But it was also why a lot of people were really upset or, like... Not necessarily upset, but, like, found a thing to latch onto in terms of, like, criticizing the casting of this movie. So they cast Michelle Pfeiffer as Frankie. And a lot of people are like, wow, from Kathy Bates to Michelle Pfeiffer, they've really, like, taking this play about this down-on-her-luck, unlucky-in-love, unassuming uh, waitress, and they've turned it into glorious luminous michelle pfeiffer you know the face that launched a thousand ships the woman from fabulous baker boys atop the piano the most gorgeous woman in the world basically and a lot of people were just like okay so you're you're gonna hollywood up this play and it's classic you know too pretty casting that was the line 
even in the positive reviews of Frankie and Johnny, there were like, you know, a lot of hay was made about Michelle Pfeiffer being too pretty for the role. And was she, was she, you know, ultimately right for it? And I think the fact that Kathy Bates had just won the Oscar the year before for Misery for playing a character, sort of a monstrous character. I think that plays yeah. into all these sort of narratives of like how we value pretty people and not as pretty people. And like, I hate this kind of narrative because it goes on the predication of like, you're basically calling Kathy Bates ugly, ugly. by, by I omission. That, and this I hate is that. my problem yeah. with this conversation as well. Yeah. Like, I guess like, you know, we, we're talking about a conversation that was happening, you know, 30 years ago almost at this point sure but you still see it a little in other ways and i think maybe we've gotten better about talking about it but like just reading up on what the conversation was like for frankie and johnny it's like sure you're saying michelle pfeiffer's too pretty for this role but you're also saying kathy bates is some type of troll or something which is really unfair to that performer as well Well, and also and then you go back to like so is edie falco in the in the stage revival back to is that plain enough for you like i don't understand what kind of like standards we have to meet like audra mcdonald is it because she's like you know not as young as she used to be is that okay for you like i don't understand what standards then we're supposed to meet for this character i think when you're making that argument too about this role you're showing your ass a little bit and that like that's the only thing you can think of about this woman is how plain she looks not like any of the circumstances of her life or any yeah. like and I will I mean, say I guess some of it's probably text that she like dresses herself down or something but I think a lot of it's just in the attitude of the of the character and I think credit to both Pfeiffer and to Gary Marshall for not making her for not going to these like odd extreme lengths to like deglamify her we talk about like actresses yeah. who deglamify themselves for Oscar and whatnot and like she doesn't have you know, this, like, awful makeup job or whatever. She's not, you know, she doesn't have an insane hairstyle or whatever. It's just acting. It's just through, I mean, you know, whatever, like... It's her posture. It's, like, how she hides herself. It's how she, yeah. And I that's... I I mean, from the performance alone, like, it doesn't seem like an unnatural fit or that she was reaching. Like, her performance is really good, and you actually buy her as this woman who's, like very guarded emotionally and yeah. like doesn't put herself out there. And... and it's not a condescending portrayal as it might have been if an actress, you know, if any other actress had been in it and sort of gotten it in their head that they have to play against all, you know, this beauty that has all of a sudden become controversial. I was watching her. I did, I did a little bit of like a deep dive on Pfeiffer yesterday and just in terms of like what was on YouTube, I tried to find an interview from the Frankie and Johnny period. And I also tried to find an Inside the Actor Studio clip. She must have done Inside the Actor Studio, but if she has, I couldn't find it on YouTube, which sucks. Um, she might have done it in like the Stardust era. Right. That's what I was thinking. Like, that's at some what point. makes, yeah. Um, in fact, I want to look her up now on IMDb and see if she has. But in the meantime, I watched, uh, they had a, a Barbara Walters interview from, it was between Frankie and Johnny and Batman Returns hadn't opened yet, but I think it was, she was doing pre-publicity for Batman Returns. Not that you would know it from the interview because Barbara Walters, I swear to God for half of this interview was just talking about how Michelle Pfeiffer plays against or, or, or deals with 
her beauty. I think Barbara was obsessed with this idea, especially in the post Frankie and Johnny period where Pfeiffer had talked a little bit about how the downfalls of being held up to this beauty standard, right? That she had to maintain this quality that everybody had lauded her for. And she talks a lot about like Sean Connery had just been named people's sexiest man alive at age 60. And she's like, that will never happen. You know, we do not live in a world where that will happen for a woman. She's like, I won't get that at 60. It's interesting. Cause she's like now like 61. She's like, I won't get that at 50. She's like, that just won't happen. And so she talked about how sort of viewing her career as a little bit more, limited she's like my career as it exists now doesn't have very long of a shelf life and it's interesting to look at her career through that lens because she really does make a sprint through the 90s she works with all uh almost all of like the big leading men of her era although weirdly not Cruz or hank so i always feel like are the like the one and one a of like big movie stars of the 90s but this comes in like the thick of her big, especially her Oscar era, where like she's in Married to the Mob. She doesn't get nominated for that, but she's nominated that same year in supporting for Dangerous Liaisons. Married to the Mob gets some Oscar nominations anyway. Dean Stockwell gets nominated. Baker Boys then is the next year in 89. She almost wins Best Actress. Jessica Tandy beats her out for driving miss daisy are you a baker boys partisan are you yep i love it she's so good in that movie. she's incredible and it's very much the quintessential michelle pfeiffer performance it's the one that like i think so- aside from batman returns no yes. but i mean i think it's the one i think baker boys is the one that solidifies the michelle who pfeiffer she is as a performer who she is as an icon right like i think that's what we picture in our heads that face that that attitude right um, yeah, that kind of like spunky, natural performer yeah. who like doesn't call attention to herself, but does and just like how natural of a presence she is. Right. Then it's the Russia House 1990 Golden Globe nomination, Frankie and Johnny 91 Golden Globe nomination, Batman Returns 92, maybe her most impressive performance in terms of taking something that was so genre and... I guess Nicholson was also, like, acclaimed for the Joker in the previous Batman movie, but I think in Batman Returns, I think... It's different because it's different. his Nicholson's Joker is at least playing off of his own public persona in a certain way yeah. that she is not doing yes, with Catwoman. That's true. That it feels, like, very much from, like, the feet up right? Um, what she's doing. 92 is still too early for any kind of awards buzz to happen for a superhero movie. But that same year, so she, she gets nominated for love field, a movie that fully just doesn't exist. One of these years any, I like, will watch level? love field. I truly will. It's hard to get your hands on. I imagine that I think, that's true. It's for I think available it is to now rent. rentable, yes. but it wasn't for a very long time. It's available to rent written by actually, interestingly enough, Don Roos, who is in that American masters episode on Terrence McNally. They're like best friends, Don Roos and Terrence McNally. Interestingly enough, that is her to date last Oscar nomination for love field. Best actress 92. She ends up losing to Emma Thompson for Howard's end. Year after that, Age of Innocence, which is also an Oscar player, although not for her. And strangely, interestingly, not for Daniel Day-Lewis, even though it's Daniel Day-Lewis in a Martin Scorsese movie. Like, you couldn't imagine a more (laughs) Oscar-tempting 
movie than that. And then it's a very up and down rest of the 90s. We're like, Wolf is a disappointment. She's a movie star at this point. Right. Dangerous Minds is a big box office win, but it's not well regarded enough to be an awards play. It's a very interesting movie. It's It's gotten Love that back. Movie. It used to be on cable TV, I swear to God, every day. And then it went away for like 15 years. And now it's back. I see it a lot on the movie channels again lately. And every time it's, it's on... It's on HBO right now, I think. Yes. Every time it's on, I drift past it on the cable grid and I will land on it. And I will. it shocks me how much I remember every single line of that movie. <laughs> I watched it so much. Um, there are it, no victims in this classroom. There, it's it's problematic as hell, even was then. But like certainly today, it would be. You know, there's so much going on. White savior stuff. Um, you know, there's a lot. I will still watch the shit out of that. Absolutely, movie, though, I, yeah. up close and personal, which should have won an Oscar for Diane Warren for the Celine Dion song, but otherwise is kind of a middling movie. We talked about Tajillion on a previous episode of this had Oscar buzz. Um, we will talk about A Thousand Acres at one point on this podcast, and we probably will also talk about The Deep End of the Ocean. So, like, the the 90s sort of end on a lot of big possibilities that don't ever work out for Pfeiffer. And then after I Am Sam and White Oleander in the early 90s, she mostly goes away. She has this sort of, like, spurt in 2007 where she makes three movies – uh, hairspray being among them and then she just works very sporadically since then and only really i mean mother had oscar buzz for her because it seemed like such an intriguing comeback role with her and aronofsky and i think she's phenomenal she's in it legitimately amazing in that movie as her character is listed on her imdb as woman woman um she eve y'all and dropping in that kesha sound cue <laughs> she's a motherfucking woman um and then she's you, in murder on the orient one express you did, sorry Ugh, wig reveal murder on the orient express, she's the really good she's movie. the best performer in murder on the orient express i don't think that's a good movie at all and i don't think hers is a performance that like should have been oscar nominated but like it does it does deserve to be mentioned that she is the best she's the best one in that movie I will say you skipped over one that feels like the closest she has gotten to a nomination since that last nomination in 92, um, and that is White Oleander. Oh, um, I did. She got SAG nominated for she that, did. right? Yes. That's a movie we will definitely talk about at some point. I love um, her in that movie. I think she's yeah, so she's good in that movie. Absolutely fantastic. Um, yeah, that movie's not always great. Yeah. Um, but, like,. I don't know. I think that also would have been a great nomination because it does kind of distill another part of Michelle Pfeiffer. Like we, you mentioned uh, Fabulous Baker Boys is like the quintessential what we think of when we think of Michelle Pfeiffer. I think there's an element to what White Oleander is and the like ice. the frostiness yes. and yeah. like the undercurrent of emotion that would have made a great nomination just on the fact that like this is a major aspect of what we think about yes. Michelle Pfeiffer as a performer. That, and it could have like symbolized that. That Barbara Walters interview that I mentioned that I saw. Um, and I couldn't quite tell whether it was because it was Barbara and Barbara was being kind of a dick. But um, there was such a, a remove, not a remove, but like you could tell that Pfeiffer is, is choosing her responses. I think a little carefully and I, you know, holding back, there's a hostility there 
that again could have just been Barbara, but I feel like I remember at the time where she was sort of known as a little bit of a tough interview. She didn't like doing interviews. She was sort of outspoken. She doesn't do them to this day. Well, it's funny because you see like a few of them. If you go on YouTube and sort of look it up, you see there's a few of them there, but they are sort of few and far between. I think, I think, I don't know what it was actually. Um, But I think also she decided she adopted her first child between when she was between relationships, when she was, uh, Broken up with Peter Horton, but before she had gotten together with David E. Kelly, so she adopted essentially as a single mother, which if you remember the early 90s and the Murphy Brown versus Dan Quayle of it all, that was a, uh, a decision that attracted a lot of uh, nosy and obnoxious press questions from people who thought they were entitled to an explanation or a defense of why a woman mm-hmm. would do that or should be able to do that. And so I can you can see that kind of thing. It's it's wild to watch. I watched a few of these sort of like old interviews with her from the 90s and like the way the kinds of questions that she would get and the kinds of she had an sort of an outspoken uh, speech at a luncheon in 92 during remember how 92 at the Oscars was the year of the woman. If you watch the 92 yes. Oscars, which I know I have recently, and I know that's not an option for a lot of people, um, <laughs> it was, it was they kept mentioning 1992, the year of the woman. And that was sort of a thing that year beyond the Oscars, like in Hollywood, the year of the woman, whatever, whatever. And Pfeiffer sort of got up to speak at this Women in Hollywood luncheon, and she says, So, this is the year of the woman. Well, yes, this has actually been a very good year for women. Demi Moore was sold to Robert Redford for $1 million. Uma Thurman went for 40000 to Mr. De Niro. And, uh, you know, just three years ago, Richard Gere bought Julia Roberts for, what was it, just $3,000? So I'd say that's real progress. And you can see, like, the discomfort in the room. And there's a sort of, it's like, she's not here. We, we want to applaud, but we shouldn't applaud. Like, that kind of a thing. Stir the pot, Michelle Pfeiffer. Exactly. And then there was a lot of, like, why did you say such a thing? Can you defend that same blah, blah, blah? And so I the, think she was... The detail itself defends it, bringing it up. Right. And so I think then she was, I think at that point, known as kind of a, a spikier personality than maybe people wanted her to be at the time and so i think you get a little bit of that in i think you're right in that like white oleander frosty uh icy kind of persona or at least just that she plays it so well and like essentially after white oleander she's mostly played villains you know like she's gonna be the villain in the maleficent sequel this year right she's essentially a villain and mother but like yeah. everyone's a villain and mother um but i want to do a quick little i know we've been doing games recently but i kind of like I, I like that we've been you know pop quiz yes i love a pop quiz so pop quiz hot shot one of the things that i thought was so striking was especially through the 90s where they essentially just paired up pfeiffer with every leading man in hollywood for at least one go around she's with you know um, Jeff Bridges and Baker Boys. They put her with Mel Gibson and Kurt Russell in Tequila Sunrise. She's opposite Harrison Ford in What Lies Beneath. She's opposite, you know, all of these people. So 
Um, wait, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. She's worked with seven of these leading men more than once. One of them four okay. times. One of them three times. Everybody else is two. Kate Nelligan, interestingly, is one of mm. the women she's worked with multiple times. She's worked with her three times. Frankie and Johnny, Up Close and Personal, and Wolf. Um, but there's this list of, what did I say, seven? Seven actors who uh-huh. she's worked with multiple times. So I've sort of gotten them all laid out in front of me. I'm going to give you the years that she worked with them. And if you can't guess by the years, I'm going to give you a character name. Okay. And then we'll just go from there. We'll go, we'll, we'll hint from there. Okay. Okay. All right. One of them, as I said, was four times. Oh, also, the other thing is we only count Avengers Endgame if it's paired with something that's not an Avengers movie. So it can't just okay. be Avengers Endgame and somebody else who's in, you know, it's, you can't and have two. Whoever she's worked with four times has to be Avengers Endgame. No. All right, so the four-timer, her years for the four-timer, 2007, 2011, 2013, 2017. So they didn't work together until 2007, and then in the the 10 years since then, essentially, 12 years since then, it's been four times total. Four times. You said 2007, so that's either Stardust um, and Hairspray. Right. Is it... uh... 2011, is that Dark Shadows or New Year's Eve? It's New Year's Eve. Zach Efron. No. All right, I will give you, give me, which one of the years do you want the character from? 07, 11, 13, or 17? Some are much more, uh, will give you a much better chance than others. Uh... Damn. Uh, 2007. Let's narrow this down. All right. 2007, his character's name is Captain Shakespeare. So that's got to be Stardust. Right. Robert De Niro is in Star... Is it Robert De Niro? It's Robert De Niro. Stardust in 07, New Year's Eve in 2011, The Family in 2013. Oh, God. Right? Nobody's... That movie does not exist. And then 2017 HBO movie, The Wizard of Lies, where he plays Bernie Madoff and she plays Ruth Madoff. The Wizard of Lies. All right. So next one, I'll give you the, the one where she worked with three times after that. So this one is 2007, 2018, 2019. 2019. Okay. So that's an endgame person. Right. You said 2018? Yes. Paul Rudd. Yes. Okay. Do you remember? Do you, can you name all three of the movies? Uh, didn't she, was it Amy Heckerling did a movie yep. that, like, disappeared off the face of the earth? Yep. What's it called? Do you remember the title? No, I don't. I Could Never Be Your Woman, 2007. Oh, God, that just sounds like a Chantel Craviazza. Yeah. <laughs> and then 2018, Ant-Man and the Wasp, 2019, Avengers Endgame. Okay. All right, five more, two movies apiece. This next one, movies from 2012 and 2017. Johnny Depp. Yes. Do you know the movies? Uh, Murder on the Orient Express and Dark Shadows. Yes, correct. All right, next one. 1983, 1991. Ooh, so that's Frankie and... Oh, that's uh, Scarface and Frankie and Johnny. Yes, Al Pacino, correct. Next one, 1992 and 2007. 92, so it's either Batman Returns or Love Field. Um... 
You said 97? No, 07. 07. 07, so Hairspray or Stardust. Uh, oh, it is, uh, it's Christopher Walken. Yes, what movies? Uh, Hairspray and Batman Returns. Yes, exactly. Very good. I, that would have been one if you needed characters. Would have Either one of those characters would have unlocked <laughs> Max it for you. Shrek. Max Shrek yeah. and Wilbur Turnblad. Very evocative character names. All right, the next one, 8794. Okay, 94, 87. 87 would have been pre her first nomination. Right. The year I, oh, I know this because it's the year I was born. It's always on like my favorite movies of the year I was born. It's which is V-Swicked. It has got to be Jack Nicholson. Yep. Also for I'm guessing Wolf. Wolf 1994, directed by Mike which Nichols. Which is problematic but so fucking good. It is both of those things. I have to see Wolf if only because at some point I want to have watched all of the Mike Nichols movies. And I have no memory of Wolf, but I've seen Wolf. This I is just, just remember the episode the, of me being like, I've seen it. Don't know what it is. I just remember the poster of Wolf being like each one is half of their faces. Each side yeah. of, of is half of their faces. All right, last one. 1996 and 2019. So 2019, it is this year. Um, ooh, so she's got Maleficent. She's got Endgame. Is it someone from Avengers Endgame? Yes. 96 is to Jillian. Nope. Oh, um... Is that also the up close and personal year? Yes. It's Robert Redford. It is Robert Redford. <laughs> so funny. His character to me that in Robert Up Redford. Close and Personal is named Warren Justice, which honestly could oh, have been God. his character's name in Avengers Endgame because that would have also worked. Can we talk about when you were tweeting out to get people to name all of the Oscar winners yeah. on in Avengers Endgame yeah. and nobody could get Robert Redford? And I was just like watching all of those tweets run in laughing to myself yeah. because I was like, it's fucking Robert Redford. It's it's quite the thing. I, I still want to find out if there are any movies. That's one thing our listeners can do for us. If you can find a movie that has more than eight Oscar winning actors in the movie let me know and and like bonus points for if you can find a movie that had eight oscar winning actors at the time of the movie because i honestly think this is a record and we only don't know it's a record because nobody has been able to like go through first person who can do this we will call you out on the oh absolutely we will joseph list all of the oscar winning actors in avengers endgame all right avengers endgame oscar winning actors are uh michael douglas tilda swinton Natalie Portman, Marissa Tomei, Robert Redford. Wait, wait for it. I know the next one. Now I'm trying to remember which ones I've already said. What did I say? I'm trying to like go like up and down the dock. Um, you did not say William Hurt. Yes, William Hurt. That makes six. Um, I said Swinton. I said Tomei. Brie Larson. Brie Larson, Gwyneth Paltrow. Eight. It's so funny to me. It's funny because of the roles they And play. somebody tried to say that Jennifer Connelly would make nine, but I don't think we ever hear the voice of Spider-Man's mecha suit. Because the voice of Spider-Man's suit 
like how uh whatever is jennifer Connelly. is jennifer Connelly the same way that like um carrie condon is the voice of friday the uh the the system that runs tony stark's suit anyway but i don't think we ever hear that voice so i think it is only eight just those eight but yes i mean if she's billed in the movie then she's there but i don't think she is I don't. I. I'm not looking at. Oh, them. neither am I. Okay. So anyway, can we talk about the 91 <laughs> Best Actress race a little bit? Because Pfeiffer does get the Golden Globe nomination in the comedy category. All this is what's fascinating to me is that like these are truly like three Oscar years that bleer like bleed together because you have are? Kathy Bates wins for Misery, yeah. then you have or like I guess Frankie and Johnny links them all together because Kathy Bates played Frankie. Uh, Off-Broadway when the play uh, originated, um, conversation for Michelle Pfeiffer, and then this year, the Best Actress winning role was famously originally offered to Michelle Pfeiffer, who turned it down. It is Jodie Foster as Clarice Starling in Silence of the Lambs. And, more interestingly also, yes, so it's Jodie Foster wins for Silence of the Lambs. Oscar nominees that year are Susan Sarandon and Gina Davis for Thelma and Louise. The last time that two lead actors from the same movie have been nominated together I've, since then. And I think this is probably one of the prime reasons why they're not anymore is because the sense was that Sarandon and Davis split each other's vote. And that without that, that one of them, and I think it would have been Sarandon at the time because Sarandon was in the same place, weirdly enough, that Pacino was at this time, mm-hmm. which was, when are they going to win? And Sarandon, that would last for a few more years. I just recently, we t- we've talked about, all right, this is going to take us off on a little bit of a detour, but remind me to get back to the 91 Best Actress Race. Um, it will bring us to the Al Pacino conversation, so keep going. Well, yes, both of those conversations should happen. But so uh, The Client has been on HBO a lot lately, and I watched it in full the other day. I forgot how much that's another movie speaking of like dangerous minds kind of thing where like i forgot that i know every word of this movie because i watched (laughs) it so many times and i was younger but we talk about the 94 oscar race where saranda gets nominated for the client and that was the last year they nominated her before she won the next year for dead man walking which is uh uh the last time she was nominated at all so 94 I always talk about being a truly bizarre Best Actress year, and it was. That was the year that Jessica Lange won for Blue Sky, which had been on the shelf for many years. Um, Nobody saw that movie, and yet she swept every award for Best Actress. Um, Winona's nominated that year for Little Women. Jodie Foster's nominated again for Nell. And and, uh, Susan Sarandon gets the nomination for The Client that everybody sort of scratched their head about because nobody saw The Client as an Oscar movie at all. It was sort of a, it was a summer movie. It was a moneymaker. It wasn't uh, supposed to be an Oscar movie. And I think a lot of people sort of poo-poo that nomination as a result. And I'm watching the movie again. And I'm like, oh, she's fucking excellent in this movie. I'm pretty sure we've talked about this nomination on a previous episode. Yes. Because it's like, even I am like someone who's like, no, this is a good nomination. She's good in that movie. But like at the same time, like that nomination fully happens just because yes. she is like an overdue narrative like even Pacino has like bananas things in there like that Dick Tracy nomination well it's funny that Frankie and Johnny comes in between the Dick Tracy nomination in 90 which people thought he was going to win for just because he's Al Pacino and he hasn't won yet that was like that was the fever pitch of 
that Pacino thing. And then in 92, the year after Frankie and Johnny, he is nominated twice in both lead and supporting, supporting for Glengarry Glen Ross, which a lot of people thought he would win. A lot of people thought he would win in supporting and not lead. He was nominated in lead and eventually wins for Scent of a Woman, which is the big, you talk about a performance that defines an actor um, Mm -hmm. and in their persona, like anybody who grew up in any point after the seventies, remembers Pacino not for uh, Michael Corleone or or Dog Day Afternoon or Serpico or any of this. They know Hua from uh, from Scent of a Woman. I literally just found the clip of um, Elaine and Seinfeld annoying the soup Nazi. And part of that was, <laughs> she's like, you look like Al Pacino. Hua! And I was like, right, we all were doing the like Al Pacino, I'm going to take a flamethrower to this place. Like that whole thing. So... He ends up winning for that, but a lot of people thought he would win in supporting for Glengarry Glen Glenn Ross um, so that they would give lead to Denzel Washington for Malcolm X, which asks Spike Lee about that. He's still not over it, and maybe rightly so. Um, but then Gene Hackman swept. That would have been the better thing to do. But also, Al Pacino, just like Susan Sarandon, has not been nominated since winning. Right. It's a lot. It's a big like. Like that's what happens with these overdue well, narratives. It's like once they finally give it to you, they're sick of. This you. is why they. This is why everybody thought that Streep winning for Iron Lady would mean no more Streep for a while. And Streep is like jokes on y'all because I'm going to get nominated five more times since then. But wait, backing up, backing up, backing up. Sarandon, Pacino. Oh, right. So 91 is the year in between Pacino for Dick Tracy and Pacino twice where he ends up winning. And it's weird that this movie doesn't do anything for him, doesn't get him a Golden Globe nomination even. Like it's, and I think he's quite good in this. I think he's better in this than he is in, I don't know. I think he's good in even Dick Tracy. He's so over the top, but that's absolutely what that role requires. I mean, I would kind of prefer him to have won for Dick Tracy than Scent of a Woman. I think he is perhaps better in Frankie and Johnny than his actual win, but I still think he's a little miscast. Like, it didn't fully work for me. Pfeiffer is definitely the show for me here, but I think Pacino plays off of her very well. I think they make a great... It's So, all right, talk to me about this, because a lot of people... You mentioned that this is on Broadway right now. It's with Audra and Michael Shannon, and I'm fascinated to see what the Michael Shannon-ness of him brings to this role, because it's something that I think, at least in the movie, is being commented on, which is this idea that we see in a lot of old romances that don't comment on it, which is persistence paying off that a man sort of pursuing a woman and not taking no for an answer, not in a way the text of the movie isn't like physically aggressing, but there's this idea of a man falling in love with a woman and she sort of resisting it and he being persistent and ultimately winning her over. Right. And I think this movie at least draws a draws a circle around that and is like what's up with that where like she specifically like calls this behavior out nathan lane's character specifically calls this out they still get together so the message of the movie is still you know persistence paying off but i think at the very least i think mcnally works to sort of draw a little bit of a line to what this behavior is and i think it's maybe a middle ground to what we're seeing now where i think i'm seeing a lot of people who see 
Frankie and Johnny and the Claire de Lune with Audra and Michael Shannon being like good performances, but I don't like this story, which is, you know, the, the sexual politics of the story. And I wonder if it's because Michael Shannon is such an intense actor that it's hard not to read menace into that. Yeah, well, and the same is with Pacino, but Pacino is actually kind of low key in yes, this movie in a way that feels like a conscious choice, I guess. Yeah. I mean, maybe after, you know, there's the line that this Pacino had pursued Gary Marshall to be in Pretty Woman and he didn't get the role, which, like, can you imagine? Like, <laughs> um, uh, so it's like you can Pacino wanted to work with Gary Marshall and wanted to do this movie. But like you can also see how it would have been. Like, from the performer's perspective, like, after doing this high camp crazy role in Dick Tracy, wanting to do a downshift, but, like, to me it feels a little labored um, in a way that, like, took me out of the love story a little bit um, and doesn't feel fully in sync with what Michelle Pfeiffer's doing and, like, I liked him best when he felt deferential to her performance. I agree with that, yes. Um... Yeah. So yeah, I, I, I'm not fully sold on him in this movie, but I do think it is still, like, to your point you were bringing up earlier, it is interesting that, like, this fully didn't register for him. And I think it's the three the three bigger performances surrounding it, Dick Tracy, Son of a Woman, and Glen Gary Glenn Ross, where he's not, like, he's not the volcano in that movie, but, like, it's a fucking mammoth movie. Everybody gets their moment to pop off in Glen Gary Glenn Ross. Yeah. So, like, um... But yeah, it's interesting that the that by this point, what we wanted out of Pacino was big. Was um, I don't think he got nominated for Godfather Three, but even that kind of a thing of um, he has those couple moments in Godfather Three where he really goes off. One of which was the big silent wail at the end of the movie um, when Sofia Coppola goes dad and then dies. Um, God, I love that. I love I love introducing that scene to people who don't know. Who don't who hadn't even seen it, who like who know that Sofia Coppola is Francis Ford Coppola's daughter and all that that, but like don't remember that like she was shorthand for shitty actress forever because of that performance and because of like those flat line readings in Godfather Three were so and I like I sort of stand up for Godfather Three. A lot of people sort of feel like it's such a shitty um third chapter to that that franchise's legacy. Um, but that part where she gets shot at the end and she just turns to him and goes, dad, in this such, like, <laughs> I find it to be such, every time I think about it in my mind, it gets more and more the Californians where it's just like, dad, I've been like, it's, it's a, um, I, um, anyway, wait, backing up, backing up. It's got a like flower crown in her hair yes. and she just got back from cello. Right. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, but I, I back to 91 Best Actress, though, for a second, because it's Foster, Susan Sarandon, Gina Davis. And then that category is filled out by Laura Dern, who um, was still insanely young at the time. She was like 20. Look up how young Laura Dern was in, in Rambling Rose, because honestly, you got it. Thank you. 
And then the fifth nominee was the Golden Globe winner in musical or comedy, which was Bette Midler for For the Boys, which at some point, look up the the Golden Globe speech for For the Boys, and it's this, like, fantastically semi-hostile thing. I think famously she and maybe James Caan did not get along on that movie, and I think that production was a little bit fraught, and her winning, I think... From what I can remember, and maybe I'm just making this up, a lot of her acceptance speech was like talking about the box office numbers on For the Boys and how they weren't there and nobody went and saw it. And it was a, it was kind of a bitter speech. But so she makes it into the Oscar top five. But the women she beat at the Globes for Best Actress in a Comedy Musical, Pfeiffer for this movie, Frankie and Johnny, Kathy Bates, which we talk about the Kathy Bates of everything, gets nominated that year for Fried Green Tomatoes, which is a movie about a woman, her character, who feels that the younger, prettier women are encroaching upon her life and upon her territory. You remember that? I am a little aghast that Fried Green Tomatoes was submitted as a comedy. It is, in a way. Parts of it. Itchy Threadgood, this is your mama, and this movie is not a comedy. Wait, they kill a man... They kill a wife beater in that movie, yes, but then they turn him into barbecue sauce. That movie's a little bit of a comedy. I mean... Uh, Cicely Tyson says secrets in the sauce with a wink. Like, come on. Like, there's there's comedy to that. Plus, all of Kathy Bates' stuff is actually comedy. Like, yeah, you know fair. what I mean? Tawanda, and she's jumping on a little trampoline and whatnot. Anyway, Ellen Barkin... I'm older and I have insurance. <laughs> yes. Yeah, the whole Tawanda scene in the parking lot. That's what I mean. Um, I wonder if she was picturing Michelle Pfeiffer on the face of those women. Anyway, <laughs> Angelica Houston in the Adams Family, which is interesting. I think she also got nominated for Adams Hell Family yeah. Values, but like, she's so good. Um, so good. And then Ellen Barkin in a movie called Switch, which I have fully never heard of, and now I'm going to look up and see what it was. Switch, 1991. Ellen Barkin and Jimmy Smiths. The poster is. <laughs> The poster of Switch fully feels like a Goldie Hawn movie that, that didn't cast Goldie Hawn. It's uh, the it's a revolver where it's a giant revolver where Jimmy Smith's is sort of like lounging on top of it, like lying down with like propped up on his elbow, almost in like a Susie Diamond, Fabulous Baker Boys way. And then Ellen Barkin uh-huh. is hanging from the like the the muzzle of the revolver with both hands with her pants around her ankles wearing like a men's shirt and a tie this is a wild oh it's a blake oh my it's a blake edwards movie oh okay i didn't realize that makes a lot of sense on this poster because i'm looking at it now too is fully only the early 90s but it's that's a goldie hahn poster that never was right like you could oh yeah like this is put it next to the overboard poster it's the same uh the the plot description is this is also rentable on prime amazon prime by the way a sexist womanizer is killed by one of his former lovers and then reincarnated as a woman wow do i want to see this movie (laughs) jimmy smith's ellen barkin tense all over lorraine brocco is in this movie joe beth williams is in this movie Tony Roberts is in this is. movie. All right, everybody, take a break. Catherine Let's Keener. Catherine Keener as a character named Steve's secretary. Okay, um, everybody, take a break. We're all gonna go watch Switch with Ellen Barkin playing Goldie Hawn, playing the ghost of Jimmy Smiths. <laughs> I don't know what's happening here, but to to bring us back to answer your question, yes. Laura Dern would have been twenty three when she shot Rambling. Amazing. Rose. So she gets nominated in part because there's this great mother daughter narrative with her 
and um, Diane Ladd, who was also nominated for Rambling Rose. The second of her two nominations, as she was nominated for Wild at Heart for smearing red lipstick all over her face uh, in in David Lynch's Wild at Heart, which Laura Dern was also in. So that's a tough top five to crack in terms of narratives. I would have... I love Bette Midler. You know I do. But I would have definitely nominated Pfeiffer. I do, too. Well, the Bette Midler thing... uh, I mean, I don't think I've seen For the Boys, but also, like, that's this, like, carryover legacy thing from The Rose, one of the greatest performances of all time, because it's the same director, and it's also, like, semi-a-concert movie. Yes, well, and it's also... I'm sure that was part of that narrative. And this is the big... um, Bette Midler is huge in the adult contemporary market at this point. This was like she had done from a distance as the follow-up oh to Wind Beneath My Wings. And we talked about like, you know, Beaches. The fact that Wind Beneath My Wings was ruled ineligible for the Oscar song category because it was originally written for somebody else and yada, 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 is one of those great injustices. But like there was no f- song that both dominated the charts and from a distance defined a movie no i'm talking about wind beneath my wings in this case like well from a distance did too oh yeah but But from a distance isn't isn't more isn't so intimately connected to a movie is what i'm saying um yes but anyway midler was huge at this point this was also the period where she shows up on johnny carson's last second to last tonight show the last tonight show episode he had with guests which was her and robin williams for the whole hour and if you have a chance Find that episode on YouTube. I think almost all of it is available on YouTube, at least in parts. It's She famously bolts after performing because she was sobbing. So she performs a couple times, actually. She she does this sort of... She rewrites the lyrics to um, You Made Me Want You in this sort of like funny little parody. And then she and Carson do a semi-impromptu... Um, I think the song is called Here Comes That Rainy Day, where they sing to each other, which is like find time to take a breath during that because it is impossible. I don't know how you can watch that. And just and then she goes and sings um, One for My Baby and One More for the Road from the stage portion. And she sort of, that's the famous shot where they look, the camera goes over her shoulder and you can see her, see Carson watching her and his like hand is rested on his, and, uh, his face is rested on his hand and he's sort of, you know, close to tears. And then she goes over and she puts a, she gives him a Hawaiian lei and runs off stage and that's the end of the episode because she starts to cry you're right and then earlier in the episode it's robin williams who is this like famous like live wire talk show guest and he's talking about all this topical stuff where like he talks about murphy brown and dan quayle and it's it's the single best episode of late night television ever and if you can find a way to watch it on youtube please do i'm gonna try and remember to link to it when we post this episode because it's so good uh, we've really gone some places with this Frankie and Johnny some places, Frankie and Johnny. Um, sorry for all the diversions. Frankie and Johnny! Yes, thank you for bringing it back. Is there, thank you, Terrence. Is Brown. there anything else we haven't talked about in relation to this movie? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there's a... I mean, like, there are some good... Like, there, it's a good romantic comedy at points. I think, like... There's this moment where, like, they share a kiss and then, like, the truck that they're standing in front of opens up and it's filled with flowers that's, like, yeah. fully La La Land found dead in a ditch. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
I don't know. I mean, like, I, again, I think it's a little disjointed when it, like, kicks into the stage play in the back half of the movie. Yeah. Did um, you catch, speaking of that opening shot where she's on, Pfeiffer's on the bus and Terrence Trent Darby is singing in the background, where she's reading a magazine and Penny Marshall is on the cover of that magazine? Yes, absolutely. I'm about that. Uh, what else do I want to say? Oh, uh, this also belongs in the Michelle Pfeiffer bowling cinematic universe. She bowls in this just like Grease 2. I fully yes. broke into We're Gonna Bowl Tonight when this. And when I saw did you notice scene. the song that they play when they cut to the bowling alley? It was Love uh, what Shack. Was it? One of my. Yes, it was Love one Shack. One of my all time faves. Yeah, I like this movie. I don't love this movie. I do love Michelle Pfeiffer in this movie. I feel like that's. Yeah. Yeah. This would have been, rather than a Scarface reunion, this would have been a better Fabulous Baker Boys reunion. Well, they talked Put about Bridges, Bridges for this. this movie. Like, I know he was considered for the role. That would have been good. Have, it would have been better. Yeah. Well, so he, this same year, is in The Fisher King. He gets, wait, no, Williams got nominated for The Fisher King. Yeah. This was the, the, the era where... Bridges kept starring with people who got Oscar nominated, with Pfeiffer and Baker Boys, with Williams in um, Fisher King, and then with Rosie Perez in Fearless. And I think in all three of those movies, you could have also nominated Jeff Bridges. Mercedes Rule also gets nominated and wins for the Fisher King in 91. Um, you could have nominated Bridges in all of those movies, and it would have been fully deserved. And I think that was part of, because he got nominated a bunch before that. He got nominated for Starman and um, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. Like, a lot of these nominations that people don't remember. But then when the 2000s happened and sort of had this resurgence, and that's why he had such a narrative for Crazy Heart, which was like, oh, Jeff Bridges yeah. deserves one. And I think part of that was this stretch in the 90s where he was in these Oscar movies that all of these Oscar voters saw and clearly liked and just was sort of, you know, he was never the story. And then finally, for Crazy Heart, he was the story. Right. And the police are coming Correct. to take me for that very obvious take. They're coming to take you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, please, I have so many obvious takes. Um, Anything before the one IMDb piece. Game? Uh, we should talk about Kate Nelligan for oh, a hot we minute. Should. Because I knew going into this movie that she'd won BAFTA and National Board of Review, and I guess New York critics as well, for supporting actress, which I was like, okay, that's interesting considering this is a character not in the play. Right. Um, and then it is kind of bananas when you watch the movie because it's like they gave her the prize for this. But it wasn't just Why? for this, though. This, it wasn't. It was in It combo. was the same year as Prince of Tides. Right. And I think it was one of those. And it's funny when they mention it on like IMDb, I wish they were a little more rigorous of being like, and also for this. Because you're right. You would sort of scratch your head. I think she's she's sort of playing a little bit, actually, interestingly, the Diane Ladd, um, Alice doesn't live here anymore kind of a thing. She's a little, um, mm -hmm. wait, what was that character's name in Alice? Flow? It's a little flow, right? There's a little bit of like she's the like other waitress with the big personality, the broad, the broad, right? Exactly. Um, and yeah. she's fun. I think she's wonderfully fun in this movie. It rem between this and How to Make an American Quilt, I'm apparently a giant Kate Nelligan fan, which is interesting to find out. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so Prince of Tides, she has the the role. She plays Nolte's mother in flashback with that harrowing scene in the Prince of Tides, which you're never ready for when you 
watched. I've seen that movie a couple yeah. times, and I'm never prepared for what happens when we finally see his like big childhood trauma in, in the Prince of Tides, and she gets nominated mostly for that scene, and um. That is, of course, a Best Picture nominee. Nolte was a big contender for Best Actor, ends up losing to Hopkins. Very famously, Barbara Streisand, who directed that movie, did not get nominated for Best Director. Um, and it's one of the big sort of... You talk about the big like director snubs of the 90s. It's like her for that. Um, well, Baz Luhrmann for Moulin Rouge, but that's not until 2001. But that's one of the big ones. Ron Howard for Apollo 13. Ron Howard for Apollo 13, sure, absolutely. Um... But yeah, so Nelligan had, that was a big Kate Nelligan year. Nelligan loses to, as I mentioned a second ago, Mercedes Rule for Fisher King. And it's like, to bring it back to Pfeiffer, part of Mercedes Rule's um, big momentum for winning for the Fisher King, she had she had won the Tony for Lost in Yonkers, I think, in that span as well. But also, she's so funny in Married to the Mob, and she wasn't nominated, I'm pretty sure. I think it was just Dean Stockwell got nominated from that cast. But she plays Dean Stockwell's wife. Stockwell is the mob, is the head of the mob who keeps um, sort of hitting on Pfeiffer's character. She's the widowed... Um, she's Her husband was Alec Baldwin, and he gets bumped off in that movie. And then she's you know suddenly the widow, and he really like aggressively pursues her. And Mercedes Rule plays his wife and is fully driven around the bend crazy and it's like an absolute shrieking mad woman in that movie but she's so fun because of that and i think that was a big part of the momentum that led to her winning in 91 for the fisher king so it all really revolves around michelle pfeiffer at all times at this at this point in hollywood you couldn't throw a stone without something that was connected to her True. Sorry. Again, I keep monologuing. <laughs> no, I always fine. know when I've monologued um, for too long because we get back to you and you're just like, yeah. <laughs> you're fine. You're fine. Um, Any last words on Frankie and Johnny that are Terrence Trent Darby yeah. or otherwise? If you could throw a coin into Terrence Trent Darby's wishing well, <laughs> what other movie have we covered here on this head oscar buzz that you would like to open the film with terrence trent darby scream singing scream the title singing the, the title i mean i think we're talking about pfeiffer so all i can think of is to jillian on her 37th birthday <laughs> either that or rendition but in the style of uh, fiddler on the roof but you know you know my affinity for that Cast Terrence Trent Darby say... in your next production of Fiddler on the Roof, you cowards. <laughs> All right. Anyway, anyway, do we want to get into the IMDb Let's game? Let's do. Explain to the children what the IMDb game is. All right, we end all of our episodes with the IMDb game where we challenge each other to name the top four titles listed as the known four on a famous actor or actress's IMDb profile. Uh, Caveats being, we try to avoid Marvel and Harry Potter. Those typically float to the top, though a lot of our listeners have been yelling at us lately that there's not a lot of Harry Potter out there. Whatever. Um, uh, uh, We get two wrong guesses if we get to that point we get the year of the remaining titles as hints um we also mention if there is voiceover work or television yeah it's the imdb game it is so would you like chris to give or receive first 
Um, I will give the first. Okay. All right. So we talked about Kate Nelligan in The Prince of Tides. Prince of Tides famously snubbed for the Best Director nomination for uh... one Miss Barbara Streisand. In Funny Girl? Yes. 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 Barbara Streisand. Okay. Barbara Streisand is, uh, as Goldie Hawn famously did at the Oscars when the First Wives Club presented, it is Streisand. Streisand. She's known her. Streisand. I've known her for 30 years. Um, Are they all acting credits? They are all acting credits. All right. Is one of them Funny Girl? Uh, One of them is Funny Funny Girl. Funny Girl? Actually, I should say two of them are producing credits. That she also acts for, But she's acting in. Okay. So it's like... Um, she does all of it. It doesn't. She happen. was not in Lion in the Winter. Um, racial, racial. Is one of them the mirror has two faces? The mirror has two faces. Man, I. Speaking of Jeff Bridges, <laughs> that is a movie I wish we could do. Maybe we'll do that. I don't know. Even for an exceptions week, I feel like that's too major because Lauren Bacall was such a major category nominee for Almost it. got but, it. But, like, there was such hype for that movie in all categories. That was going to be Streisand's next, you know, stab at Best Director. And there was a Peak song. hot Jeff Bridges. It was, again, again, Jeff Bridges in that movie. And so hot. And it ends up becoming a Lauren Bacall vehicle for her first nomination ever and then becomes so infamous for being the movie that she lost for when everybody was certain she was going to win. Um, With Julia Pinoche winning while dressed as Count Chocula. <laughs> it is demonstrably Look up true. her Oscar winning look dress. It up. She looks she like does Count Chocula. Look like, I love her, it, but, but she's like, dressed no, like No, she Count looks Chocula. like if RuPaul's Drag Race had a serial mascots challenge. It's a serial mascots runway theme, right? Category is yes. serial mascots. And she was just like, I am working my Count Chocula realness. It was inspired i'm giving you chocolate i'm giving you vampire and i'm living for it that's that is uh sugar cane as juliette (laughs) as count chocolate the layers honey the layers yes truthfully all right um (laughs) now i'm (laughs) Alyssa edwards as captain crunch is i'm giving you rich white sailor i mean I can't wait a second. <laughs> now I'm just like, Trixie Mattel is Toucan this is Sam. the first time that I have fully derailed you. <laughs> Trixie Mattel is Toucan Sam with like a big like nose prosthetic. <laughs> okay. Honey, these are Fruit Loops, honey. <laughs> All right. Um, Barbara. Have you ever been a fruit and also a loop? So I've gotten funny, funny girl and I've gotten the mirror has two faces. I'm only going to be fair. No is, wrong guess. This is like that Simpsons episode where you look inside Homer's head and it's just the like the cow dancing with the like music cranking. All that I'm thinking in my head at this point is like different drag queens doing serial mascots. <laughs> just for just so everybody knows. Um, all right, Barbara, Barbara, Barbara. Um, Yentl. Yentl, yes. also famously not directed for be- nominated for best director. Right. right, yeah, that was that was really her narrative for a while. Um, and then is the Prince of Tides the fourth one? No, it is okay. not. One strike. 
You have one more wrong guess before I give you the year. Hello, Dolly. I feel like Barbara Streisand would not help you with the year. Did you say hello, yes. Dolly? Incorrect. All right. So you are getting the year. The year is 1973. Oh, the way we were. The way we sure. were. Memories, uh, like the corners gorgeous. of my mind. Love that Memories. song. Marvin Hamlish. Okay, that was one of the better IMDb games I've had in a while. Okay. Yeah, I went easier. I, I had another Prince of Tides option that was much more difficult. Well, I'm glad you went with this one. So, I followed the trail of breadcrumbs down the Gary Marshall pathway. And Uh-oh. though he is, we're talking about a movie he directed this time, I also very much think of him as the, the uh, chocolate candy bar magnate in A League of Their Own who decides to start a <gasps> women's baseball league. Mr. Harvey, your candy bars are completely nuts. And he, of course, you know, he tries to shut down the league and David Strathairn argues to uh, to keep it open. I'm not picking David Strathairn, though. I'm picking one of the ballplayers from a league of their own, Ms. Rosie O'Donnell. <gasps> Rosie. Um, Okay. Sorry, you you knew exactly how to derail me because you brought up David Strathairn in that. A League of Their Own, and he's fully sexy in that movie as well. Mr. Lowenstein. Rosie O'Donnell. Yes. Uh, Exit to Eden, directed by Gary Marshall. No. I'm glad. Mm, people, the children have forgotten. The children have forgotten Rosie O'Donnell in a dominatrix outfit is. in Exit to Eden. Right. Yeah. Uh, doesn't she, like, get spanked in that movie? No, I think she spanks someone. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, uh, I guess A League of Their Own? Yes, A League of Their Own is one of them. Um, Sleepless in Seattle? Yes. The quintessential best friend in a rom-com. I feel like she is the defining one of those. Even though I always also think of Rita Wilson as a quintessential best friend in a romantic comedy. Because she also plays that role in that movie. There's no TV. Or no, wait. Rita Wilson is like the 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 woman he tries to date that goes wrong. Anyway, um, no, Rita Wilson. Who is she in Sleepless tries in Seattle? to get him on a date? She's she is she's a friend, right? Yes, I think she's a Tom Hanks friend, but right. maybe Meg Ryan has multiple friends. Well, they both do because Sleepless Hanks is also again. friends with Rob Reiner. Yes. Yes. Anyway. anyway, you got Sleepless in Seattle. Sleepless in Seattle is canonically about. Oh, friends. one of these is a is as a voice in animation. Oh, uh, Tarzan. Yes. Wow. I never. I would. I don't even know if I knew she was a voice in Tarzan. I know way too much about Tarzan, yeah. and I hate Tarzan. Yeah, I've um, never seen it. Because remember when they adapted it for the stage? Sure. Why? Didn't see that either. But yeah, the voices in Tarzan um, include. Glenn Close, which is so funny because she voiced Andy McDowell in Greystoke, which is about Tarzan. Why was yeah. that not more of a story when Tarzan was was a movie? Anyway. Probably because everybody already wanted to forget about Minnie Tarzan. Minnie Driver is um, a voice okay. in that movie. Tony Goldwyn is the voice of Tarzan. I didn't know that. Lance Henriksen. Anyway. Uh, now and then. No. And that's your second strike, so now you get a year. Mm. Which might be the same year as Now and Then. What year was Now and Then? Now and Then was 95. Okay, this is 94. It's got to be the Flintstones. It is the Flintstones. 
Flintstones. Remember how how Rosie was like in the right before she got the talk show, her most known thing was being able to do a perfect Betty Rubble laugh. And yes. thus she was cast okay. as Betty Rubble to Rick how, Moranis' like, Barney, which is two of the craziest pieces of casting I've ever heard. These are all, like, huge hit movies. And remember when I was the person who led their Rosie O'Donnell IMDb game with Exit to Eden? <laughs> because I am what? Homosexual. Yeah, very true. Very true. I guess that's the four that I would think of for Rosie, right? I maybe would not think of Tarzan. Well, but no, like, but like, so I guess what would the rules of this game designate that I would guess Tarzan? I would probably have thought of something like Now and Then or Harriet the Spy, even. Yeah. And honestly, well, uh... I I fucking stan her scene in Beautiful Girls. I know that there's a lot that's problematic about that movie. That movie I am famously yeah. like loath to ever revisit because I feel like I would either hate all of it or be mad at myself for still liking it. <laughs> but she has that big scene where she just sort of goes off on Timothy Hutton and Michael Rappaport in like the middle of the street or in the middle of a drugstore and then out into the street about their like ridiculous obsession with like playboy models and whatnot. And the, the beauty standard talk about the beauty standard. It is. I'm glad you brought up Rosie though, because like Rosie like is constantly like dragged and I get that like, you know, some of it's not, Great, but like we, Rosie deserves better. You know, the League of Their Own was her very first we movie. We love Rosie. I think I tangentially knew that. Her very first, like, and then Sleepless yeah. in Seattle was her second movie. Like that's insane. What a great one-two punch to start off. Yeah. Up until then, she was just a stand-up comedian. Justice for Rosie in the like cultural consciousness. Oh, I'm fully justice for Rosie in the cultural consciousness. You're right. She has, you know, problematic aspects for sure but i think yes. she's undervalued for the positive things she's done oh my god i mean she brought theater into my midwestern one million home. percent absolutely that's why i know as much about late 90s early 2000s theater as i do is because of the rosie o'donnell show so yes very good and i don't watch smilf but apparently she's very good or was very good on smilf so good for her is that it? I think, I think that's, that's it. it. I think that's our Let's episode. Let's get Michelle Pfeiffer that nomination, not for Maleficent. <laughs> yes. She has that French exit movie from the director of The Lovers, a movie I really liked. And it also has Lukey Hedges and uh, I guess Tracy Letts voicing a cat. Um, we already are going to be in the tank. Who's directing this movie? Did you see The Lovers with Tracy oh, Letts and Deborah Winger? Azazel Jacobs. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. yes. Okay. I'm into that. Loved that movie. Yeah, what else does she have going on? Some movie with Mich- with Annette Benning, a retired surgeon suffering from Alzheimer's becomes a suspect in her friend's murder. Michelle Pfeiffer and Annette Benning in pre-production. Why? Well, that sounds like something that could still not happen. Oh, it feels like something I dreamed up. That like at some point somebody will remember that it's not a real movie and just a dream that this guy named Joe had. But yes. 
I remember like Julianne Moore and Tom Hanks had a Western on their IMDb <laughs> for like five years in pre-production. Yeah. It's like, that's the quintessential this movie's never Yeah. Uh, well, cross your fingers. All right. That is our episode. If you want more This Had Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Chris, where can the listeners find you and your stuff? and Johnny were sweethearts. But he was doing her wrong He was doing her wrong in a bad way But she was good and strong He was her man But he was a jerk uh, you can find me on Twitter at Crispy File. That's F-E-I-L. Please also find me on Letterboxd. I keep a running list of this had Oscar buzz titles where it has direct links to episodes and our IMDb game trivia stats. I also write regularly at the Film there Experience. We go. I am on Twitter at Joe Reed. I am also on Letterboxd uh, as Joe Reed. I promise to start updating there again soon. But let's be honest, I will probably be on Twitter going through this whole Drag Queens as serial mascots thing for quite a while. So... By the time you read this, by the time you listen to this, I will probably still be doing it. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mavius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever else you get podcasts. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with visibility on Apple Podcasts. So finish up that VHS movie you're watching and write us a nice review, huh? So that is all for this week, but we hope you will be back next week for more bugs. Frankie and Johnny! <laughs> so that was Frankie and Johnny.